All right, so this morning, and as you can see from the, the questions, there's a, there's a theme with these questions, and that is discipline. When we think about discipline, we, we know what comes to mind first, and that is corporal punishment, uh, the good old-fashioned whooping. Some others have put it in other sundry terms. Uh, but either way, spanking is a spanking. So, yeah, amen. It's sometimes when parents correct their children in, in, in these ways or in this fashion, we've, we've been guilty of saying, this will hurt me more than it will hurt you. Now, I just got to ask, has anyone ever said that? Has any of y'all have ever said that? Is willing to admit it? Okay, so Miss Susan has said it. Anybody, anybody else? Actually, all our parents are like right here, so... Um, so, Kenny never said it, and Stein, you never said it? Probably, okay. okay. It probably requires a hand up, so put your hand up, right? All right, so, so yeah, we've, a lot of times we've, we've have said that. We certainly heard that statement before, but, of course, the kid's response in that usually would be, and probably would get more of a spanking if they said it, but if you're on the receiving end of the discipline, um, you're more like, uh, let's just switch and let's find out if that's really true. Um, or, or not. Um, and yet now, as, as a parent, uh, ironically, I'm, I'm on the other side of that statement, and even though it sounds like a pretty absurd statement if you're on the receiving end of the, of the discipline, but if you are the parent, I can understand, or at least I can sympathize, why that statement came out, or why parents uh, say that, and why disciplining our children is difficult, and I got two reasons why. Number one is because I love my children, and I, and I do not like intentionally, intentionally hurting my children with my own hand. It's not like I wake up each day thinking how I can hurt my child. Right? So that's number one. That's why I think that statement is probably true. Number two is correcting. Christina and I were talking about this yesterday, that cor correcting, training, and disciplining children is much more difficult than not correcting, training, or disciplining my children. In the, in the short run, in, in the, the short view of things, it's a whole lot easier just to let them do what they're going to do and clean up the mess than it is to deal with it. That I could ignore it, I can just move on, I can clean up the mess, or I can do the, just do the chore myself if they're, if, if they're not going to, to do it, because it's a lot easier to avoid the conflict that might ensue if we pursue obedience in our, in our children, therefore having to correct them with discipline. But in the long view, if you, if you play the short game with, with children, if you play the short game, it's not going to work out so well. If you play the long view, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look better. We see from the Proverbs that, that, that generally speaking, that discipline is a good thing for our children. So discipline is hard. It, it, for parents, it is, it is, it is hard. And it, and it does hurt. We, we pay a price with every time we, we, we discipline. 
But discipline and love, right, our first two points, discipline and love, they're not opposed. They're, they're not at odds. In fact, they, they run together. They're, they're not opposed because if we love our children and we want our children to have principles and morals, then we will discipline. We discipline because we love and we discipline because we have a future hope for our children that our children can't see. But we can. That's why the Lord has given us, that's why children are not meant to raise children, but adults and parents are. So as we look at our passage this morning, as we, as we look to Luke chapter 1 and, and finish chapter 1 this morning, we're going to see Zechariah during this amazing event that takes place, the birth of his son, which is such a miraculous event, something else takes place there that I think is just as amazing. And, and, and that is the rejoicing in the joy that Zechariah has as he's experienced the discipline of the Lord. So let's start. We're going we're to unpack the narrative part of the passage. So let's look at verse 57, and let's read that together. We'll unpack that. We'll spend a few minutes doing that, and then we will get to his, to his song. Look at verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And the neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise, circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made a sign to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called, what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for, for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. Period. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loose, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard of them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, we know from last week, we read a scripture in verse 56, where it told us that, that Mary stayed there for three months. We don't really know if Mary stayed for the birth or not. It's just The text doesn't say it, doesn't, doesn't speak of it. Um, some have assumed, some haven't. So just kind of understand that she may be there. She, she, she may not have been, but she was, certainly was there for three months leading up to the birth of, of, of John. Now, both of the births, so we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus next week, but both of these births were pretty miraculous. Pretty miraculous. And already from this first one, how special and impressive it was to to everyone who witnessed it. No doubt this birth was a special time for everyone. Now, 
these births were special. Birth of a child is a special time, right? It's a great thing. And it's something to be celebrated. It's something to be enjoyed. But it's not something really out of the ordinary, is it? I mean, it happens every day, multiple times a day. Even here in Statesboro, multiple times a day. It happens multiple times a day that there's babies being born. But this pregnancy and this birth was out of ordinary. In fact, it was incredible. It was incredible. It was a hard to believe. Because old women who are infertile their whole entire lives do not have children. All right, we've been covering this. This isn't something new for us, but certainly was remarkable to them and to those who saw, who came and saw what happened. She conceived. Nine months later, the baby was born. Joy and excitement came into this new family, this new parents. Can you imagine the excitement and the joy of Zechariah and Elizabeth when their son was placed into their arms? Decades of tears and disappointment, but now the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord was on them, and their tears have now been turned to laughter. No doubt recalling in their, in their minds another older couple of, of ages past, Abraham, Abraham and, and, and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah at the birth of their son Isaac. And Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Sarah laughed. Abraham laughed. I mean, it's, it's so remarkable and so incredible and so miraculous. I mean, it's like the only thing you can do but just kind of giggle and laugh and say, look what God has done. How could this be? And joy spread across the hillside there in, in Judea, verse 58. When I read verse 58 and was studying it, I, I, I kind of took that to mean that the, the relatives and the neighbors were just flat out stunned. They were just flat out stunned. They, they didn't know what was happening. I, I bet they probably knew some things. Elizabeth's not feeling well. Elizabeth's gaining a little weight. Don't know. But certainly, would it ever cross their mind that Elizabeth is pregnant? No way! But when they showed up, hearing the rumbling of what's going on, they hear, and guess what Elizabeth's doing? She's holding a baby. A baby that wasn't there before, but a baby that's there now. And joy spread across the hillside. They know that the Lord is working. So they joined them in rejoicing. They joined them in rejoicing, fulfilling the words of Gabriel. Right? Gabriel, back in verse 14, said, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And this is an anticipation, right? The, the many that are rejoicing and having joy, this is an anticipation of the coming birth. The coming birth of the good news of great joy, the birth of the Christ. So just as they were commanded to do from the Old Testament, they took their son on the eighth day with their relatives as they showed up traditionally to show up to celebrate with them, to circumcise their son. And they did this according to the law and the regulation that all Hebrew males were to be circumcised on the eighth day. 
That's a sign of the covenant that this child is being set apart according to the covenant with Abraham. And then we get to the, to, to the whole naming debacle. Right? They get there in the, the name, and I, I just don't think the name was kind of put out there. They really didn't know, so the relatives just assumed that it was going to be Zechariah, that no one else really knew. So they're, they're there, they're, they're doing the, the circumcision and probably having like this impromptu baby shower because nobody brought any gifts because they didn't know she was really pregnant probably. So they're doing this impromptu baby shower, and they don't know what to call the baby, so let's just call him Baby Zech. There's Big Zech and there's Little Zech. Makes sense. Elizabeth tried to correct them. No, his name is John. And finally, they're like, okay, let's correct this. Let's ask Zechariah. Zechariah, write it all down. What's his name going to be, Zechariah? Your name's pretty awesome. Name him after you. What a legacy to have your your son named after you, born in your old age. Zechariah, writing it out. His name is John. And I think pretty emphatically. Pretty emphatically there, right? Who isn't going to get that one wrong? He got the one before wrong. He's not getting that wrong, that command that you will name him John. He was not going to get that wrong. Now, this was an odd thing, right? John is not an odd name for us. It's not an odd name for us. It's a very common name. It's the most common of, of all names. And it's a great name. It means, his, his, uh, it means the Lord has given grace. But it wasn't a common name. It wasn't as common as it is, as it is now. So it was a, a, an off name. Wasn't, and then second, a, a child was relatively to be named after someone that they were related to. And so they're stunned again. So here, just the relatives of just being stunned over and over and over again, shocked over and over again. And if they were shocked there, then they were shocked again because as Zechariah wrote it out, and his name, what his son was going to be called, immediately the Lord opened his tongue. His tongue was loosed. Opened his mouth and his tongue was loosed. And the first words that, that Zechariah spoke in nine months was blessing God. Nine months. Nine months after Gabriel's promise to him and he failed to believe but disobeyed the believed has now been replaced by faith. Has now been replaced by faith. Nine months after seeing the Lord work His faithfulness and, and his, his, his wife to conceive, Mary's visit, and now the birth of His Son and studying the Scriptures, I think, throughout those time. And now when it came to naming His Son, once again, He was going to get it right. He was going to name His Son correctly. Zechariah endured nine months of frustration, losing his senses, pent-up frustration. Imagine how frustrating that could be. You go your whole entire life and you lose some of the most important senses you have. And his response is blessing the Lord. And, and then the people respond, the relatives and the, and the neighbors, they, they, they respond, and they respond in, in, in fear, right? But not the bad fear, but the fear of, of worship and the fear of, of, of respect. You see it in verse 65, and fear came on all the neighbors as they were, as all these things they were talking about and, 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 and through all the hill country of Judea, it spread. 
It spread. It was a fear, awe, reverence that the mysterious work of the Lord led to real spiritual conversations throughout the land. Look how Luke concluded that section there in verse 66. What then should this child should be? First, they laid it in their hearts, saying, what, what, what then should this child should be? That is no ordinary birth. This will be no ordinary child. And they could recognize, for the hand of the Lord was with him. So let's look to verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation of, to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, but of the tender mercy of our God, but because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Once again, Zechariah's first words after being mute and deaf was not, I can speak. I can hear you. You can stop writing now. No, it was rejoicing. Bless, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It's the words almost like that have been pent up for nine months. It's the response in a sense of the, the ideal believer who encounters the divine acts of mercy and grace. This is how the one who receives mercy and receives grace responds when their eyes are opened, when their ears are opened, when their mouth is open, and their hearts come alive with the light of the Holy Spirit and responds with rejoicing and blessing God. Zechariah sings. Sings with a response of overwhelming joy. Can you, can you see that? He doesn't read and say this in a muddle, monotone, I don't really want to read this attitude. But with joy, he sings from the depths of his heart. God bless you. But where did this joy and this rejoicing come from? Why another song? We, we talked about Mary's song last week. Why, why another song? 
Certainly, we see a lot of his learning come out in the text here, don't we? A lot of Old Testament references and, and, and deep promises of, of God, but yet there was something more. Did you catch it? Did you catch it back in verse 67? One of the ongoing themes of the Gospel of Luke is the work and the role of the Holy Spirit. Verse 67. Before Zechariah sang and his mouth opened and his ears were, were, were open, the song that he sung was filled with prophecy given to him and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. Like, we're, we're not even out of chapter 1. We've had four main characters and now all four of them have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. We, we can't move past this. We can't, we can't move past this, this truth and this reality because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on these individuals right here in chapter 1 sets the tempo of what the Holy Spirit will do in our hearts and as Jesus will teach us later, what the role of the Holy Spirit will do. He informs us to worship in truth, to rejoice and to delight in very specifically delight in Christ. He always points to Christ. Never points us to our flesh and to our own abilities, but to Christ. And that everything that has been given to us by the Lord is a gift from the Lord and is to be used for the Lord. He also corrects us and He disciplines us for our good. And so as we read this, this song, this is exactly what the, what the Holy Spirit accomplishes in Zechariah. This rejoicing is, is worked out by the, by the Holy Spirit so that He would rejoice, bless God, make much of God. That the, the gift of God in the, the birth of His now newborn Son was not ultimately for Him, but, it was for, but He was for God. And through the blessing of God on Zechariah and Elizabeth, God was going to bless everyone. And we see that blessing starting to roll out in the relatives and the neighbors. Why another song? Why, why pause again? Why would Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, why, why would he pause again? It, it doesn't really help us to move the plot along, the narrative along, so we can get to chapter 2 and the birth of of Jesus. Why? Why would he include another one? But he's being very intentional when he's putting these and placing them in the narrative because it's his way of giving us a clue on how we should read this book. He's giving us a clue on how we should read this, how we should read this book. Think, with the, think, for, think about this with me for a moment. At the outset of this gospel, chapter 1, we have already have two songs. Two songs by, by two different characters that God is moving in. And God has specifically moved them in a way to show them that God is bringing about salvation for His people. And they both respond the exact same way. Rejoicing in great joy. So maybe this is the pattern. Maybe this is the pattern in which we are to read, study, and meditate on Luke's Gospel. Rejoice. Because it's only going to get better. 
as we read and study more and see more specifically the works of Christ, the works of God through His Son. The works are only going to get better and better. So how much more with every single week that we come here and we want to know the Word, or we're reading it throughout the week, we have an anticipation to see what God does so that we can rejoice more and more and more. We have the Scripture and we have the same Spirit to bring about that rejoicing. And as we stated earlier, this came out of discipline. This rejoicing, this great joy, this blessing on God came out of discipline. For Zechariah, it has been nine months. I said that already, but it's been nine months. And for us, it's only been like 40 verses in four weeks. You think about that, nine months. That's a, that's a long time. That is a long time to be disabled, in a sense. Disobedience has consequences at times, doesn't it? I thank the Lord for when I was disobedient and have been disobedient, that I have felt consequences. Because it's taught me a lesson. It's taught me how to get back on the path. Discipline teaches responsibility, and it teaches us that we have responsibility for our actions, and every action has a consequence. For the first 15 years of my life, I pretty much, uh, I, I, I pretty much uh, learned the less, my lessons the hard way. I was rebellious in my own ways. I, I, uh, I wanted to do everything my own way. Right, I was told to do something and told it to do a certain way, and then I would choose to do it my own way on my own time and when I wanted to. And I was clearly in my heart being disobedient. And so I was disciplined a lot. Discipline to most of us is a negative. As we mentioned earlier, we think about the, the corporal punishment that we have received maybe in our youth particularly if we're on the receiving end of it, it's definitely a negative. But discipline from the perspective of Scripture, although painful and, and hurts, doesn't have, doesn't have the intent on, on our destruction, doesn't have the intent of our destruction in our, in our crushing as it feels like the pressure that it's putting on us and the difficulty that it's putting on us when, when God removes something or takes something from us or causes a pain or an injury or whatever it may be or a loss. But its intent and its design and its purpose is to build us up. And as we saw Zechariah's response is to bring us to deeper and greater joy. So therefore, all discipline, all discipline has a, has a hope directed in every consequence that comes our way to a deeper and greater hope. So what I want to put before you today is what, what God did exactly in our brother Zechariah's life is exactly what God also does in, in our life because he has a deep hope for us. Now, when I was a child and I was disciplined, Nine times out of the ten, I could not see what my parents saw. 
I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see it. All, all I felt was, no one loves me. My dad doesn't like me. My mom doesn't, wasn't, doesn't like me. They don't, no one likes me. Why am I always being treated this way? This is unfair. This is, this is unjust. That's all that I could see. My arrogant little tiny mind self. That's all I could see. But you know what my dad saw and my mom saw? They saw a son that they didn't want to turn into a rotten man boy. They had a hope for me. They had a hope. So they they paid the price. You know, it hurts me more than it's going to hurt you kind of thing. They, They paid the price. And this is what the Lord does in discipling even old Zechariah. Needed discipline. And this is what the Lord does in Zechariah. That his prideful disobedience, and through his prideful disobedience, the Lord would discipline discipline him so that he would have a greater clarity. A greater clarity, not just to see his sins and his failures and his imperfections, and not to leave him hopeless and, and, and wounded in such a way that he would never be healed, but no, but to point him to a greater hope and a greater faith and a greater joy. To show him the glory of Christ and the all-satisfying joy that comes through faith. And that is essentially the gospel. That is the hope behind all discipline. It's to refine and to strip away all our little fleshly tentacles that we have in this world. All the little ways we just want to serve ourselves and satisfy our flesh and love ourselves and only find hope in our own abilities. And all of those things, as we talked about last week, they just come crashing down. They betray us every time. So God lovingly disciplines us to draw us back and to cut those tentacles. And sometimes, yes, as a child, we will yell, that's not fair. But despite the sting of his rod and the pain, it is for our good. Discipline comes in two ways. The Lord disciplines us in two ways. The first is formatively, a formative discipline. Formative discipline first comes through, through teaching right now. This is a, an example of formative uh, uh, discipline. It's when we, we hear biblical preaching and teaching and, and we're reading the Bible, reading the Scripture, and the Holy Spirit uses the, the Word of God to, to shape us and reshape us and make us and change us, and He uses it to discipline us, to correct us. If I could just kind of stop for a moment there. We should always be in prayer that we would have a heart of humility to always be willing to be open to be shaped by the Word of God. When, when, we are, when that prayer no longer exists, that's when hardness comes. And then we can pray that Lord in His mercy will discipline us to break that heart. By grace, hopefully draw us back so formative discipline first comes through teaching. Another way that formative discipline also comes is through suffering and persecution and pain and loss. 
And, and through this suffering, pain and pain and loss that we may, we may feel is not necessarily in a direct consequence of our sin. So this kind of, this, this kind of discipline doesn't necessarily come because of, our, because of our sickness, but it still has the, the same purpose behind it to refine us and to form us, to shape us. The Lord uses sickness. The Lord uses accidents. The Lord uses pain. All of you used to give us greater clarity, even loss and death, so that we'd have greater clarity to see the all-satisfying Savior. That even life, its death, this life itself doesn't even satisfy. But Christ will. And Christ does. I think this was the point of, of, of Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where God put something into his life so that he would be tormented, so that he would, he would suffer physically. But it had eternal purposes behind it. When, when Paul would pray, God, would you just remove this from me? I mean, all of this I'm doing, can you just take this from me? It would make it a little bit, just a tiny bit easier, but remove it. But this is the Lord's response to him. Verse 9 says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. He says, therefore, Paul's mouth says, therefore I will now boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God takes that gold, he throws it in the fire, and he burns it to purify it more and more and more. We never reach to its purity until Christ comes. The potter is always going to be shaping. The potter is always going to be molding and making and sometimes even breaking the pot for our good. He's sovereign. He is the potter. We are the clay. He has eternal good purposes behind all of that so that we would have satisfaction in Christ, that we would delight and treasure in Him, and that we would bring glory to Him. That's, that's it. That's the, the source of all joy is in Him. And He in His kindness and in His grace is good when He disciplines us to correct us, to point us back to where that greater joy is. The second, after formative, is a corrective discipline. This is when we have been disobedient, when we've been directly disobedient, when we've been sinful, then He uses discipline in a way to bring us back to a correct path. Right? Sometimes I do that with my, my children. I can see Lydia, she goes running off. I would grab her by her shirt sometimes and just pick her and put her back on the right path. Oh, wrong way. We're this way. We do that with a dog sometimes, pulling maybe that we pull them back. Nope, this way. And it's not a punishment that's meant to steal from us and take from us and to make us miserable. God is not up there when, when Zechariah 
failed in his unbelief. He wasn't up there saying, take that, Zechariah. That'll teach you to be disobedient to me. No. That's not discipline. But God's discipline, as we've been saying, has the highest of goals. The highest of goals to correct us when we're on the wrong path, to draw us back so that we will grow up and we would mature. So God's discipline is for our good because he is sovereign and he is omniscient. He sees all and he knows all and he sees more than what we can ever see. A lot of times in our discipline we can accuse God as if, as if something we can see that he can't. And that we think that that pain is, is not for our good. And it seems like it. It seems that it's not for our good. And we even wonder, how could this be good? How can God be using this for my good? And the answer is, is we can't see. We can't see. I, I know two people of my family are out there. Because I can hear Kate. And hopefully Christina's with Kate. But I have no clue what they're doing right now. Christina could be sitting on the couch. She could be walking. Kate could be crawling. Kate could be walking. I don't know. But how arrogant it would be for me to accuse God, the sovereign God of the universe, who takes away something from me that he gave me in the first place, and he takes it from me, and I accuse him that he is not working for my good. That I can see better than what he can see. No matter if it's nine months, no matter if it's 20 years, no matter if it's the rest of our life, the Lord knows. And he's working, and he's working these things out for our good. And we see that good worked out in our brother Zechariah in his song, and it shows us this. And we can see through his song how this discipline, this nine months of, of discipline in his life has been preparing him, preparing him for this song. After this, we do not hear Zechariah after this. He dies. We don't hear anything from him anymore. God was preparing him for this. To sing this song. The point. To point us, to point the readers and the other hearers to Christ. To a, to a sunrise that is coming. And it's all birthed out of this discipline. So for the rest of our time this morning, which I think is kind of getting short. Did I, did I miss your hand raised? I want to share with you a couple, three things real quick. Just These will be really quick. How discipline prepares us for a living hope, prepares us to see truth, and it prepares us to have faith in future grace. Those are big things, and so we're going to cover them quickly, and we're going to cover them briefly, uh, but we'll see these as we expand throughout our time in Luke uh, together. So Zechariah's song, he, first he, he shows us that discipline prepares us for a, for a living hope. For, for a, a living hope. So, so this song of prophecy, as we've read toward the end of it, it looks forward to Christ. It looks forward to, to Christ's coming. But as we read this prophecy, it's all in the past tense. You see that? It's, it's, all, in the, it's all in the past tense, as if, as if he is singing this song, sitting with us, like, look what God has done. 
He's seeing all of this in past tense. And this is what this happens. This is what happens to him. Because he now has this, this living hope in him in such a way, so increased, that he has such great faith in the coming work of God through Christ that he sings as if it's already been done. Let me, let me explain to you what that, what that means. So, so you ever had anybody ask something of you? You're like in a group and somebody says, all right, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do that. And you say, consider it done. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you actually did it. Like you didn't blink your eyes and all of a sudden whatever you're supposed to do, do it. It didn't happen. What does that mean? It means you can have assurance that if you ask me to do it, it's done. I will not fail. And here is the faith. Here is the, the faith in, in a now new living hope in God that no longer is about doubt or fear or I'm too old. But it is living hope. It is a living, living, alive hope that actually shifts his whole entire perspective in this life. And so he looks back. He looks back at David. He looks back at Abraham. He says, the Lord has visited. He has redeemed. You see the past tense there? He's visited his people. The incarnation of Christ, the presence of God. That's the big thing for Israel has always been, is that God's presence was with them. And what he's saying, he says, God is with us. In the next chapter, Emmanuel comes. Emmanuel comes and he has redeemed his people. How has he redeemed his people? Through that little baby. That's coming. Not his baby, but Mary's baby. He's raised up a, a horn of salvation. This is power. This is victory. And we see it worked out through, through David, this warrior king who decisively won battle after battle. But the end game wasn't David himself, but David as the person was pointing to a future and greater deliverance. Not just over enemies in this world, but this greater salvation, the redemption, was going to be a redemption that was more powerful and bring about deliverance over the enemy. Overall, sin and, and death. And so the horn of salvation is a symbol of our redemption through the king's blood. And the horn would be a power of deliverance over earthly enemies. And finally, Christ's return. He spoke through his holy prophets. To what? To proclaim salvation. To proclaim deliverance to proclaim deliverance, to point to Jesus. The one who will bring victory over sin and death. That the enemy Israel strived with their whole entire existence. They could, the one, the enemy that they could never conquer. They could never defeat. Salvation was coming. He points to the Abraham Abrahamic covenant too, that the blessings of God through his fulfilled oaths was being fulfilled. And that through this deliverance and through this blessing on all peoples and all nations, which includes us, all of that, all of those things gives us now 
purpose. Gives him deep purpose to live humbly, to live holy, to live righteously. And I want to say that I think that without discipline, without discipline, it is, it is hard for us to fix our eyes in such a way that we would have such a living hope, as he, as he said. It would be hard for us to, to fix our eyes on something that is living and beyond us. We would want to just fix our eyes on this world. We want to say, no, it can't come through me. I'm too old. It can't happen to me. But through discipline, through discipline, we can fix our eyes on hope and where hope really lies. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again and to a living hope that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the living hope. So first thing, discipline prepares us to see a living hope. Number two, discipline prepares us to see truth. Zechariah turned to his very son in verse 76, and he says, And you, child, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Well, what does John represent? What does John's ministry and mission and purpose uh, um, represent? And what is he saying? What is he saying? That this child is not for me. This child is for, is for more. He understood that John was an, was an arrow that was being shot out from the Lord's bow to prepare someone else. Prepare a way for someone that would be greater. John's life was a means to an end. To give knowledge and salvation of his people and forgiveness. And discipline clarified that for John. That the purpose of this baby is to give knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sin. John's message, repentance. For the kingdom of God is at hand. He was preaching the gospel. The gospel that was coming. And this was no, uh, no theoretical knowledge that he was preaching, but rather it was a personal knowledge of an inward experience of salvation which is a result of the divine gift. John would preach the forgiveness of sins. These, these two things, this, this, this truth and forgiveness, these are the, the two basics of the gospel, right belief and a right response. And this is what John's ministry was. It was, a, it was a template of the work of the gospel, the preaching and the teaching of the gospel, and then how the Holy Spirit works through that preaching and teaching of the Word of God to bring about gospel repentance. And Zechariah, through discipline, is drawn back to the truth, to see the truth, to hear the truth. And that's what this other thing that discipline does. It prepares us to see truth. It then shows us who we really are before the Lord. This shows us then our, our, our right response. It shows us humility. 
You know? Have you ever met someone? Have you ever met someone who is so blind to the truth and so deaf, deaf from the truth, deaf, sorry, deaf from the truth? And then when teaching it or speaking it to them directly, they're just completely cold to it. We need the discipline of the Lord to continue to have a clarity of truth. Number three, discipline prepares us for prepares us to have faith in, in, in future grace. And here's what, I, here's what I mean by this. So Zechariah singing the song, his end of his song, he then sings about the Savior. He sings about the, he sings about the Savior. He calls him the, the sunrise shall visit us on high. He's pointing, up, pointing forward there. The sunrise shall visit us on high. Right? The picture, the picture is like of, of daybreak, right? Where we could look off toward the horizon and we see the sun. We don't see the sun yet, but we see the, the, the rays of the sun peeking over the horizon. And when we see that, we know that the sun's coming. John is the rays. Jesus is the sun. And he looks over and says, the sun is coming. And it's going to pierce over the horizon. And when that, when that light comes, what's it going to do? It's going to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The gospel, that's what the gospel works, it does. It sets us free from darkness, from the enemy from the enemies of sin and death, the very enemy that, that exists in all man, the sinful heart that sets us free from the enemy of all mankind. And there's nothing we could do to avoid it except for the piercing light that overcomes the darkness. So Zechariah believed in future grace, the promises of God that will be fulfilled in Christ even before Jesus was even born. He maybe not even ever met Jesus, but he certainly didn't see Jesus grown up and doing ministry. Maybe saw the carpenter Jesus, little baby Jesus, but he didn't know. He didn't see it with his own eyes, but he believed. He believed. He had faith in the, the future work of the grace of God. Paul points to this future grace in God from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. If all, their, if all the promises find their yes in Christ, then, then, then right now we can trust Him now. We can trust Him in the present If he's fulfilled his promises in the past, then we can trust in his promises now. If we can trust in his promises in the past and trust in the promises now, we can trust him in his promises in the future. We can have faith in the future grace. And discipline. Through discipline is where we get eyes to see this. And we can rejoice in this. It's that discipline that, that takes the heart that's asleep in the darkness and it awakes it with the sunshine. 
awakes us in the sunshine. I want to close this morning by pointing us to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, you can read with me if you turn there. We're starting in verse chapter 3. I think it's one of the clearest examples of God's loving discipline and his design of discipline. And this is written to the, to the church that was suffering and persecution. And this is what he says. He says, Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself. And he's speaking of Jesus. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed best to them. But he disciplines for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment of all discipline seems painful, rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Can you see Zechariah in that? Painful? Rather unpleasant? But later, produced peaceful fruits of righteousness. And so can you, can you imagine that God in His infinite sovereignty and grace and goodness that through His Holy Spirit that He is working in, in, in hundreds of different ways in each and every one of us all at the exact same time and using all these great tools of discipline to refine, to mold, and to shape every single one of us so that we would be more Christ-like, so that we would yield fruits of righteousness and holiness. Can you... Can you imagine that? Can you, can you fathom that? Can you believe that? Amazing. Maybe you remember a time in your life when, when you know the Lord brought discipline in your life. Whatever it might have been from, formative or corrective. I want to ask you, thinking back on that, can you rejoice now? Can you sing now that, that this discipline has been for your good? Can you see the gospel clear? Can you see Christ clear? Can you see His glory clear? Can you see your faith that has been increased through the work of the Holy Spirit? Can you thank the Lord now for that? Can you rejoice? 
Or perhaps maybe you've, you're walking through a difficult time now. Or have been for months and for years. Have you considered that God in His mercy is lovingly disciplining you? Formatively, correctively? Because He wants to give you clarity on the truth. Or maybe He wants to give you clarity on where your hope really lies. You're looking at false hopes or are you looking at a living hope? Maybe it's the trust in future grace. Maybe it's all three. Giving you clarity to be completely satisfied in the light that has brought you out of the darkness. That you can't save yourself. You never have. Never could. I want to encourage you. If you're walking in that time now that, that, that God is a loving Heavenly Father who is sovereignly disciplining, for, disciplining you for your good. And that is not bad. That is good. Can I also say that even though it feels like God has left you, that He is not? And as we've read in Hebrews chapter 12, He has not waned. He has not waned or even questioned His love for you. For He is a good, loving, heavenly Father who disciplines His own. Maybe for another this morning, this is my last one, last category. Maybe for others this morning, you feel like you're flourishing in the Lord. And praise God for that. May this be a word that's been encouraging, that when discipline ever does come, formative or corrective, that you will be prepared. And even now, would continue to be pressing into disciplines themselves of being in the Scripture and and prayer and serving and loving and being part of the church as the Word of God continues to shape and, and, and form you. Brothers and sisters, as we have talked even about Paul and as we talked about Zacharias, we've talked about so many others, that the wounds that the Lord gives us are for our good. Jacob limped for the rest of his life. And I don't think he would ever dare to say that that was not for his good. Brothers and sisters, God wounds us. God brings about suffering and discipline in our life, and he does it for our good. He does it so that we would, we would cling to a greater joy and as I said earlier, would, would, would break and sever all the thousands of little tentacles and roots that we have placed into this world, knowing that it's for our good and for our joy. So that we can one day, maybe even today or later, and then for all eternity sing like Zechariah did to bring glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would continue to have its full effect in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives in this congregation. Spirit, move in us this morning as we respond corporately to encourage one another to wherever we may be. We've been disciplined, indisciplined, will be disciplined. Give us hearts of humility to trust in you, O oh God that you are working all things out for your glory and for our good. 
And in Jesus' name, amen.